Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is David Hoffman without my co-host, Ryan Trout Adams, because he's away at the beach for a well-needed vacation. But either way, Bankless is here to help you become more bankless. And so today we have on the show, Eric Connor and DC Investor. And these are people that have been through multiple market cycles. They've got the battle scars to prove it. They've got the gray hairs of wisdom that we so desperately need during these highly chaotic and uncertain times in the crypto world. And so we go through some very simple but deep questions as to something I think we can all get behind, which are things like, what lessons have we learned throughout the market cycles? What lessons did we learn through this market cycle? How has their personality and like investing strategy changed as a result? Like what has the market cycles done to these humans as the markets chewed them around, yet they are still here and fighting and will always live another day, even though they've seen it all. And also, of course, we get into the conversation of macro. Is the merge more powerful than macro? And what are they thinking right now in this present moment in crypto? And of course, what are the patterns that we all see every single market cycle? What are the patterns that resemble of this current market cycle to past current market cycles? And what we can expect going forward when this whole macro thing turns around? And of course, we finish off with some advice for newcomers as well. I hope you guys enjoy Eric's and DC's wisdom. They are people that I lean on during times of strife that I've had in my first market cycle, and they have helped me keep my head on my shoulders and just perpetually exude wisdom. So Bankless Nation, I hope you enjoy this fantastic conversation with Eric Connor and DC Investor. Welcome, Bankless Nation, to the COPE room. I've got two veterans, market cycle veterans, who have seen multiple cycles throughout their life, both inside of crypto and outside of crypto. You guys have heard them on Bankless before. We're joined by Eric Connor. He's been through the cycles. He first found out about Bitcoin while working at a bank and has been around in Ethereum since the pre-sale itself and has stuck around throughout the cycles ever since then. Eric, welcome back to the show. Thank you, sir. And of course, you guys know and love him, DC Investor, the guy with the coolest NFT portfolio, at least it's cooler than yours. He has also been through the market cycles, both inside of crypto and outside of crypto, and he's got the gray hairs to prove it. DC, once again, welcome back to the show. Getting more gray hairs by the day. Thanks, David. Gray hair gang. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we're here for. Well, whether or not you guys got your gray hairs from the crypto markets itself, I think this is a time in the cycle where we could really learn from the people that have come before us. And so previously, I have looked to you guys for just wisdom of, because when we go through the market cycle, sometimes as newbies, we don't really know what to expect. And so we have to go and talk to the people who have been through the cycles before, just to make sure that we're not losing our minds. We're not going crazy. It's not going to zero. And other people have felt the emotions that we are currently feeling as first cyclers. Although I will say I'm a second cycler. And so with that context for the show, my first question for you guys is how has being a multi-cycle veteran like changed your disposition, changed your personality, your mentality? How have you changed as going through the manias and then the lows and then the manias again and then the lows again? Like how have you like ridden out these waves and how has it changed you as a person? Eric, I'll start with you. Yeah, you know what's funny is like I haven't even looked at the price of ETH in the last like 72 hours to be honest, and I feel like that has once you know like a bear market's happening, you know, the bull market's next. And like, I remember looking back in like 2013 is the first time I got into like crypto. And then like, we had this crazy top where everyone was buying like feather coin and Litecoin and all this stuff. And like Litecoin went from 50 to two, like people act like this is a new thing. It's not a new thing. And what's really interesting is like Bitcoin and ETH 
so far at least it could get worse who knows but like have less of a downswing so like as just a bitcoin and eth investor my entire life pretty much as like you know 98 percent of my portfolio this is kind of nothing and you just get used to it <laughs> and it's like okay here comes the bear market everyone's gonna freak out on twitter and now i just shit post on twitter and just like it's you know and people get mad at me now it's like hey mm -hmm. think about the newbies it's like no like i'm teaching the newbies through shit posting <laughs> on twitter it's like hey guys you know We've been here before, we go through cycles, and I kind of find solace in every cycle getting less and less bearish. Like, you know, I think Bitcoin's down 70% from the top, ETH hit like 75, something around those ranges, but we recently, last cycle, right, hit 90. So I think, I mean, to answer your question, sum it all up for me personally, I just kind of like start tuning out charts and step away a little bit, take vacations with family, realize everything's going to be okay, right? Everyone starts questioning their investment thesis. And I think that's the biggest mistake you can make, right? Like, I mean, we had the bull podcast probably what, 18 months ago or something on here. Mm -hmm. And like, we were all pretty bullish, but I think the general consensus is like sell some on the way up, buy some on the way down and know that crypto is not going anywhere, right? I mean, I think that's the most important thing you can kind of take from all these cycles. DC, how have the uh, market cycles impacted you and how has your personality been affected by the wisdom that you have gained throughout the cycles? Well, let's start off first by talking about what does a cycle mean to begin with? And I think a lot of newer investors and market participants don't necessarily get the concept of a cycle. They don't necessarily want to accept the concept of cycles. But the reality is that human behavior and especially human greed kind of lends itself towards cyclical behavior. And this has been proven in lots of different markets, lots of different kinds of financial and non-financial behavior. But especially whenever you have any technology with real fundamental value that is significant, people tend to front run that value. And this is true of crypto. We've seen it in growth stocks and in other asset classes as well. Whenever there's an asset that has fundamental value, the market tends to pile into it. And that as they all pile in, more people want to get in because the number is going up. And it kind of creates this reflexivity that causes the number to go up. Often that number overshoots its target on the way up and also sometimes on the way down. And I think everyone needs to kind of understand that market behavior because you're a part of that game whenever you invest in any kind of fundamentally valuable technology. As far as how the cycles have changed me over time, I'll tell you what, when I got into Bitcoin in 2013, I bought the top of Bitcoin. I had been investing in the stock market for years, but I had heard about Bitcoin much earlier than 2013. But I was like, you know what? I got to buy some of this because I saw it was going up, hit $1,000. I was like, this is really interesting. And I bought, I was like, I told myself, I'm definitely going to hold it no matter what. I'm going to hold it long term. Well, I bought it for $1,000 in 2014. It started to go down. And then in 2015, it went down more. I decided I wanted to buy a condo in DC. So I ended up selling that Bitcoin for like between $300 and $500. And then I saw it go back up to tremendous heights later on. And that really taught me a lesson. It was like, you know what? I need to learn how this technology works and to understand what made it special, what made it accrue value in the first place. And I need to stay engaged the next time one of these cycles happens. And that means I'm not going to sell my assets at the wrong time. I'm not going to buy in for the wrong reasons. And I'm going to position myself to survive across 
these cycles as they occur and manage my risk so I can continue to participate because that's the thing. You've got to be able to stay in the game, right? If you end up selling out at the bottom of a bear market, you're kind of done. I mean, you can always buy back in later and I've seen people do that. We can talk about some of those stories, but it's just kind of like you have an opportunity to participate in one of these world-changing technologies early. You've kind of got to stay committed and position yourself to be able to stay committed. Speaking of having conviction in the assets that we buy. Eric, you named some very OG coins that I think a lot of new cyclers might not be familiar with, things like Feathercoin. And in the same era, there were things like Peercoin and Namecoin and just some ridiculous sounding coins, some ridiculous sounding names that in the world of 2022, we would be like, Feathercoin? Like, whatever the hell Feathercoin is, it's not going to be part of the future of finance. However, back in the era of 2013, I'm sure people were like, the Feathercoin blockchain is going to change everything. Namecoin, which is like a blockchain plus ENS. So very early like naming type system. I'm sure back then people were like, oh, this is going to change the future. This is going to change everything. And then that was a cycle. I'm sure there was a fallout and a crash and a hangover as a result of that. And while it is obvious nowadays that something like Feathercoin is not going to be the future of finance, I'll remind a lot of people out of the 2021 cycle that they probably bought a JPEG that they thought was going to be the future. And so, Eric, can you talk about just like how the general sentiment always kind of falls into this trap of just like whatever is in the time of the market is the thing that is going to change the future. And then like there's this inevitable like sobriety period. Can you talk about these phases? Yeah, no, I think this is a really good topic because I think one of the things we saw in this cycle were, I guess I'll just name names, but like Avalanche, Solana, people are like, oh, this is like new, like people are reinventing Ethereum. Like this is what happens every cycle. Like Feathercoin, Litecoin were reinventions of Bitcoin in 2012, 2013. Like Feathercoin pitched itself, I think, as like an upgraded customizable Bitcoin. Litecoin always kind of pitched itself like Charlie, like you know, basically exit scan at the top of like Litecoin, <laughs> but like pitch it as like a faster Bitcoin, right? But we all know now, like that's not, I mean, block size is important and like that, that was kind of a scammy pitch, right? But we kind of saw that this cycle with Solana and Avalanche, in my opinion, where it's like riding the coattails of Ethereum and saying, hey, you know, we've got something better. We've seen this all before, right? So I think what's like really important in these cycles is to keep your head on straight when it comes to this hype of, you know, I mean, Bitcoin, I give it shit. And like, you know, I think long term, it's pretty doomed. But for now, I would still tell most people, hey, buy ETH, like 80%, maybe buy like a little Bitcoin just to like, whatever, have some in your portfolio. All these alts that like ride on the coattails, like I said, of Ethereum's the new one, right? Like, hey, we're faster, better Ethereum. It's unbelievable the hype and the funds jump in and Twitter's all about it. And like everyone, I, I'm still amazed. I've seen tweets in the last few days. No one thought Solana could have went back to $20. Like what? I mean, this is one of the most obvious things ever to me that Solana <laughs> was going to crash 95%, right? It's just, it's just unbelievable how people think this is new. But in reality, this happens every single cycle. And kind of a funny story, but I'm vacationing right now. And my wife and I were driving home. You know, we had a half hour drive home earlier and we were laughing about because we were talking about being on this podcast and stuff. And we were laughing about being 
the retail noobs in 2013, like we were buying Litecoin and Feathercoin and stuff like at the top. Cause at the time, like BTCC, which I don't even know if people remember this, there's some shady Russian like exchange, like Litecoin had gone from 20 to 50 around like Thanksgiving of 2013. And we were buying like the top on all these things and they crashed like 95% the next day. We're like, Oh, this could be the next Bitcoin. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like this is not a new thing. So it's funny how not only do price cycles repeat, but narratives repeat and people jumping behind what they think is smart money, but in reality is dumb big money. It's just all the same. DC, any comment on that before I ask my next question? I mean, my point of view on it is a lot of people, and this is something I learned from my management consulting days, the concept of like a value proposition. And I'll define a value proposition as what is the unique value a product or blockchain offers the market that cannot be found anywhere else. And when you frame the question that way, there's not a lot of unique value in this space. There's a lot of follower value. There's a lot of duplicative value. Now, I won't be quite as harsh as Eric to say that, you know, I can't say with surety that these other chains are not providing any unique value, but I think it's an open question across the board in crypto to include Ethereum still, I mean, in some domains, where is that unique value? And I don't think many investors are asking themselves that question. As Eric said, a lot of people just follow whatever they think the smart money is doing. But guess what? The smart money is selling at the top and they're not coming back. I mean, we've seen this cycle a few times with some of these other coins. And unfortunately, there's a tendency where there are some VCs, or I'll use the term VCs in quotes here, because a lot of different firms are calling themselves VCs these days, but they will pump a coin one cycle and then they're gone the next. And they will act during that cycle like it's the most important thing. I can't point to any one token that that might happen to this cycle, but we saw it happen in the past with stuff like EOS, which was the first they called themselves the first Ethereum killer. That's where the term came from. So I think that people need to be a lot more vigilant and think about where is that long-term value. And it requires patience. It requires years of patience in many cases to establish that durable value. And most people just aren't that patient. It's a good point. I think one thing to think about there too is VCs totally quote unquote VCs missed out on ETH. They missed out on ETH in 2014 in the presale. They were sleeping on it. Most ETH buyers were actually like Bitcoin OGs. And they also missed out on buying the dip and pretty much put money into like Cosmos, EOS and others before everything kind of took off in 18. And then of course they weren't buying ETH when it was number two market cap. I think that's a smart thing for people to understand and realize when they see these quote unquote VC influencers on Twitter, like ETH has to be one of the most missed out on assets of all time when it comes to big money. Just to balance out the conversation a little bit more, I will say that the alt flavors of chains, the demand where like as soon as a blockchain proves itself, it'll generate a bajillion alt flavors of that same blockchain. I saw that with Bitcoin and the proof of work fork and fair launch era, and we're seeing that a bunch with Ethereum. I will say as that progresses forward, we have seen a significant improvement in quality, even if it is like an alt flavor of the original chain, like the quality of the alternative flavor does get better and trend to be better over and over time. And while these dynamics of VCs forking something just to have an investable alternative will always probably stick around, at least I will say the quality of these forks do attract new use cases, new developers, new attention, at least during the bull markets. But I think since we are in a bear market, with the conversations here as well, what happens when everything contracts and how many people in that community and around that ecosystem is really going to be here for the long term. One question I have for you guys is, 
what would you credit to the reason why you are still here? Is it something in your personality? Is it like a lesson that you learned early on? What is one of the reasons why, of all people, many, many people come into crypto and they get washed out, but you guys have come into crypto and you guys have stuck around. What quality or what do you credit to that reason why you guys are still here? And DC, I'll start with you this time. I'll start first with crypto is not my first investing experience. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I had invested in the stock market for years since I was in college. And I made mistakes in some of those stock cycles. You know, I mean, like I didn't really understand herd and market behavior as well. And I got caught up in like 3D printing and how that was going to change the world. And I bought some of the stocks that went up a lot and I watched it crash. And I eventually learned my lesson in terms of how those things work. But basically, investing in the stock market and other assets taught me to think very long term. And especially for a technology like crypto, I think also like my experience in growing up with the consumer internet, which I know I've talked about on Bankless before. I actually recently published an article on my Substack about, you know, the early internet and what it was like to grow up during that period. And I kind of refer to this period that we live in today as the dial up era of cryptocurrency, where there's a lot of harsh criticism. A lot of that criticism is also deserved. However, it would also be myopic to not believe that we are going to eventually progress past some of these teething challenges that we have today, just like we progress past the challenges of dial-up internet. But in terms of other things that I credit for still being here, I mean, look, I stayed engaged through the bear markets and I didn't do that in the 2013 bear market. I realized that was a huge mistake. Eric did and Eric learned about Ethereum, got involved in the Ethereum presale. If I had stayed involved, I probably would have followed a similar path, but I didn't do that. So there's a huge opportunity cost to just stepping out during a bear market and missing what's actually happening. And I think finally, and most importantly, perhaps, is not over-leveraging at the wrong times. And when I say not over-leveraging, I mean, that means borrowing money to invest in cryptocurrency, which I don't recommend for most participants at all. But it can also just mean like over-investing in general. You have to have a position that you can hold. And if it's like your entire net worth and you have no other liquid assets, then you're not going to feel secure and you're going to be tempted to sell at the wrong times. I've seen people do it. I've done it myself. You don't want to be the guy that sells the bottom. It's painful. Yeah. Eric, same question to you. What about your experience, your history or your disposition has allowed you to stick around throughout the cycles? Yeah, it's funny. Like the first day I like invested in Ethereum or like even thought about its potential. I've said this so many times on podcasts, Twitter, whatever people are probably tired of me saying it, but it's a multi-decade play. Like you're not going to build the next financial system overnight, right? So I think one of the problems with cycles is people just get antsy. Like I get it. People want to get rich overnight. Like I totally get it. But in reality, most people that get rich, however you want to define that, right? Like monetarily, personally, whatever, mentally, they stick to something for a while. Like not many people just become rich overnight. So I think that to me, I knew Ethereum had a huge uphill battle. Like when I first ran across it, it's because, you know, I had some friends that lost money in Mt. Gox and I saw a talk pitch it and I'm like, hey, this could be a cool thing. Like people get control of the financial system. And this goes all the way back to, I graduated college right as the financial crisis in 2008, 2009 was happening. And, you know, what's funny is I ended up going to work in finance, but at the same time, like you kind of saw like all these systems start to fail. And then, you know, as you kind of grow up in that, you're looking for alternate solutions or alternate systems. And this idea just has fascinated me since then. And I knew that you aren't going to like 
become a leader in an industry that's been around for 150, 200 years, like finance has or banks have overnight, right? Like you're up against governments, you're up against regulators, you're up against currencies. Like this is not going to happen in two cycles. And I think that's one thing people lose track of, right? And I really think though, like, why am I still around? I, I think this gets lost a lot in like DeFi and NFTs and stuff. I like the power of the composability and the ability for anybody in the world at any point in time to not only use Ethereum, but to build on Ethereum and, you know, plug their new code, their new Lego into DeFi or into NFTs and say, Hey, look, I launched this. Maybe it fails. Maybe they exit pool. Maybe they rug. Maybe they make a billion dollars, but you know what? Someone in India or South America or Russia, or I, I don't care where they are. Like the power in that is incredible. And I think we're used to these closed off systems where people are selling your data or, you know, no one's allowed to plug in because this API holder is the one that connects your bank account to your Venmo or whatever. That's always been to me why I stick around. And I'm just never going to lose that vision. And I don't think. Ethereum and its communities ever going to lose its vision. So I'm just going to stick with it. I don't care if I'm 90 years old and we're at hundred dollars. I'm going to say I'm still going to be here. <laughs> yeah. And I'll just add on to that, Eric, because I think you made some great points, but I think in particular, that last point is really valuable for people to think about. The thing that I think that's made us both successful in crypto is that we've looked for those organic communities where people are building on these permissionless systems and it can't be contrived. It has to be real builders and community members who want to come and participate in something. And it can't just 100% be motivated by money. There has to be a higher purpose. But when you see that, man, I mean, go all in, frankly. I mean, because if it's real, it's going to grow and it's just going to compound on itself. And that's exactly what we've seen in the Ethereum ecosystem so far. Yeah. I'll say like, that made me think, I was going to say this, but you just made me think about it, is like kind of the smartest people I know are just in this space. Like I'm never, not only the smartest, but the friendliest. It just, I don't know, it's just a good vibe. It feels right. Like it's hard to just pass up on that and be like, oh, these people must be onto something wrong. Like there's just no way that's possible. Eric, you said something about like money Legos and permissionless building. And I think in 2017, as a community, we definitely tapped into that permissionless building thing. But that money Legos, that DeFi Legos part, we didn't really come up with that as an understanding until something like 2018 and 2019 when we had actual apps to plug into each other. Because in 2017, 2016, they were all siloed apps. And even Vitalik, actually, I remember him saying that he didn't really realize the power of composability in these things until it had actually happened. And so this is like a, this is a bear market lesson, right? This is something that we learn after the mania of the 2017 ICO movement, where we realized that like, no, it's not ICOs that are the new paradigm, it's composability between these applications that are the new paradigm. And like, that's a lesson that I learned very, very quickly, because I was the person that got burned by ICOs, right? That was my first cycle. That was my like bull market mania set, uh, lesson. I thought that ICOs and tokens were going to just solve human coordination. Uh, we we're going to bootstrap this ecosystem by like leading with a token first and just like hype 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 mania 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 super convicted on it because it was my first cycle and like not only was it my first cycle but it was also my first foray into like money and finance like your boy came from social work like i worked at a mental health agency so like coming into ethereum in 2017 with like all these tokens like i didn't really have any sort of like foundation to ground myself in so the question to you guys is was there like something that you had 
a ton of conviction on that you wholeheartedly believed that you lost a lot of money on? Like, did you, have you guys ever had an experience like this? Eric, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I definitely resonate a bit. I mean, losing a lot of money, the only time I've really lost a lot of money in the crypto space when I entered, I was like, oh, I'm going to just leverage this thing. I know what I'm doing. And I just lost, like, I mean, I probably wouldn't even be doing this podcast. I'd be living on an island and I would have so much Bitcoin, it wouldn't even matter, right? But I mean, I was, David, I love you. So I would still do the podcast. But, uh, you know, I lost way too much Bitcoin <laughs> on leverage, right? And because I was, at the time, yeah, I worked in finance. Yeah, I had traded stocks in the past, but I didn't understand market cycles. Like people are like, Oh, this is the best idea I've ever heard in my entire life. Like I'm just going to go all in. It can only go up. Right. And that just doesn't happen. So, you know, people need to understand that stuff goes up and down. You know, as far as like conviction I had, I think it would resonate a bit with you with tokens early on, I think where tokens started to miss the boat, let's take like the DeFi example. And yeah, I bought some DeFi tokens, probably lost a little money here and there, but they just said, we're just going to launch a token and assume it's like equity in the company. And that's just not right. I've actually been very disappointed in a lot of DeFi tokens and not giving a little bit more value to their token. Uniswap, I don't even know what's going on with Uniswap governance. It's, uh, they can barely get anything through and they haven't enabled fees back to token holders and all this stuff. I think, you know, I had better hopes for that, I would say, as far as, you know, Aave, Uniswap. But I'm not like naming names in a bad way, but like these are great apps that are doing cool things and we somehow can't like find a real way to give value back to token holders and appreciate the token a little bit. And I think uni's gone from like a dollar to $50 back to three, which I get it. Like that's the market cycle. But at the same time, if you look at like the uni governance process, like not much is going on. Right. So I, I think we can do a little better than, Hey, we have a token and our app's really cool. So I, I think I've been a little disappointed to this point about that. Cause to me, it's not that different than the 17 ICO phase. I mean, most of those went down 95%. All these tokens have two. And maybe I've got a little burned on that hopium wise and investment wise. We can definitely do better, but I know DC has definitely views on this because I've seen tweets about it and I know the whole community does. So yeah, curious to see what he thinks. Yeah, I mean, so to answer the question first, you know, my biggest losses have probably just been from being too greedy at the wrong times. So, you know, seeing a trend and then just kind of chasing in with even more money and then timing it wrong and I lose money. So not too different from what Eric described, just being over leveraged or overexposed at the wrong times. But in general, I try to get into assets that I believe in early before a lot of people like understand the value. At least that's what I try to do. And I tried to do that with, you know, Ethereum as early as I got in. I wasn't at pre-sale, but I came after that in late 2016, early 2017 with DeFi and with NFTs. But I think, you know, to speak to Eric's point about DeFi token design in particular, I also have been kind of disappointed because I think that a lot of these DeFi 1.0 protocols, as they're called, they're like stalwart protocols. I mean, they're still ticking. I mean, a lot of these DeFi 2.0 and these other like exotic algorithmically driven stable coins have just totally collapsed and blown it. But like Uniswap, Compound, Aave, they are just chugging along. They are working exactly as they're intended to. Maker is another one. But the tokens aren't necessarily reflecting that value. And I think that it is a wake-up call to governance of those protocols to say, 
hey, we have to think about how to return value back to our token holders. So we need to think about that feedback loop. At least Maker has one in theory through the token burning, but a lot of these really don't have that yet. So I'm not willing to count them out yet, but I do think the market price has reflected that reality. I also believe in some of these protocols for the long term. I think they have kind of changed the market. They have durable value. So I'm crossing my fingers that, you know, through, and some of these have already been through one cycle, like Ave. I'm hopeful that we're going to see some changes on the horizon as we move in through the spare cycle. Do we think that it's a regulator fear? I mean, I know that like technically... We can vote on stuff and whatever, but there are still leaders, let's be honest. And like, <laughs> do we think it's regulator fear? I can't quite understand why this hasn't been improved. I'll share some thoughts on that. I think that regulator fear is part of it and you don't want the central, they're not central, but you know, the people who lead the labs that have developed these products, if you will, they don't want to be seen as pushing some of these fee proposals through. That's number one. Number two, I do think that there's a fear that implementing fee income is going to lead to a competitor than stealing. You, I mean, most of the successful growth businesses in the stock market even have not shown a profit for years, sometimes decades. So I think there's some of that thinking that's at play here. I also think that the path for value creation to the token doesn't have to be through the existing product lines either. It could be creating new products. I mean, like I just look at something like Uniswap. Let's take that as an example. There's a ton of potential there. Like if they, I mean, I'm just saying hypothetically, if they developed a layer two exchange, which is as fast as a centralized exchange, that could lead to a ton more trading volume at lower fees. And the game for Uniswap, I think, is to continue to gain and grow its market share, which really, I mean, well, it started off as basically 100%, but it, it did pretty well in terms of defending its market share. A lot of people are like, Uniswap is dead, and they've just kind of surprised the market. Now the question is how to activate that value in the token. I do think it can be figured out, but I do think there's a fear from a regulatory perspective. I think this really, really illustrates the difference between this current cycle that we just went through and the cycles of old, the last cycle, uh, because from what I'm gathering from you guys, and I would totally agree, like, yo, Uniswap's not going anywhere. And the tokens that people held in 2017 and then held down to the bottom in 2018, like they went to zero and they stayed there. I mean, almost no token actually goes to zero. So when we say it goes to zero, it's more of a metaphor than anything. Like Omise Go, for example, it was a token that was very, very popular, total consensus in 2017, and effectively has gone to zero. Substratum, that was a token that I helped decentralized, I don't even know actually at this point, went to zero. Right. And now we have tokens like Aave and Uniswap and other DeFi related tokens. And no one thinks that they're going to zero. And the first cycle may be like, well, okay, yeah, we're just naive. It's just going to happen again, like last time. But the difference is, is like, we're talking about market share. Like you guys just talked about how, you know, Uniswap didn't lose market share to a competitor. And we're talking about like what has failed us with being able to have value capture in the token. So when we talk about like things that are different this cycle, Yo, this time it is actually different. Like the tokens do have fundamental quality. And my answer to this question, Eric, I know you didn't ask me, but I'll answer it, is definitely one part regulatory because the people that guide governance can't make that decision to Uniswap can't just turn on the fee switch. Like maybe the token holders are like, Hayden, when are you going to turn on the fees? Hayden, please turn on the fees. And Hayden's not going to turn on the fees because of exactly what you're talking about, which is regulatory. But underneath that, the bigger qualm, the bigger thing that I think is really holding back token value capture is 
coordination is DAO coordination. And so like DAOs right now are still learning how to do this, how to DAO. And so I think for learning lessons from previous cycles, most tokens, 99.9% of tokens in 2017 went to zero. And most DeFi tokens from the 2020 to 2021 era are not going to go to zero. And they're actually going to figure out how to come back from the bear market by meaningful value capture. And it's probably actually going to be the bear market itself that triggers these DAOs to put the fire under their butt and actually figure out how to have this token capture value. Because guess what? A lot of salaries are paid from the value of this token. What do you think about that take? Eric, I'll start with you. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely agree. I think kind of going back to your point about 2018 and stuff, I think what most people don't realize about like this bear market, which by the way, I'm not even like, yes, it's a bear market, but it's more a downturn. Like a bear market, it will be if we're having this conversation in 2023 and we've been sitting at, you know, 1100 for a while. I'm not convinced that this thing isn't just going to turn back up, which I know is funny to say on this podcast, because I know I've been painted as the bear when I got 2500 as the top. But I think we could see accelerated cycles and it loops back to your point of in 2018, there was like nothing. I mean, like Crypto Kitties and Crypto Punks were out there on the NFT side. And like Ave was called Lind. I don't even know if most people know this. It wasn't even called Ave. Right. And yeah, Uniswap was just like kind of launching. And there were a few DeFi apps. But as far as like an Ethereum user, you were just kind of like stacking your ETH in your wallet and you were not doing much, right? And at the same time, we were literally as a community, I mean, you, all three of us were there, were debating how to fund the future of Ethereum because we thought the EF was going to go bankrupt and they were laying off employees and we weren't sure like how Geth was going to get funded. So I think... You know, if this is your first cycle, trust me, it's been way worse. Like the price at 1100 and still billions of dollars flowing into this ecosystem, it's not a problem. I don't think you can really destroy Ethereum at this point. Like maybe you go down to like 10 bucks for 10 years. I don't even know. Like I think it's basically destroy proof or foolproof at this point. But yeah, I mean, there's so much out there. And I know I tweeted this like yesterday or something. Everyone in my feed is like, oh, we need to have a two-year bear market. I think times are just going to be different in these cycles. I think crypto has like a hyper acceleration of greed and fear, which drive markets. And I think we saw a hyper acceleration on the way down. I don't know if this was funds blowing up or whatever, but it was a hyper acceleration of fear. But I think this market is not like it was in 2018. We have use cases, the merge is coming, layer two is coming. And maybe, you know, Anthony and I talk about this all the time on our podcast. Maybe that doesn't matter short term, but zoomed out, it actually does matter. And I don't know, this doesn't feel like 2018 to me. I think we're going to wash everyone out quickly. And the tide pulled out and the tide might pull back in. Don't quote me, not financial advice. I don't know where we're going, <laughs> but I, I'm actually kind of bullish. I'm not going to lie. I kind of am. This is supposed to be the bear market podcast, Eric, but I... <laughs> no, it's the bear market war stories podcast. Okay, bear market war stories. Well, I think in that case, I will echo Eric's sentiment that during the last cycle, and even the one prior to that was when Mount Gox blew up, and there was a ton of concern. A lot of people, including myself, who did not understand the technology well at the time back in 2014, didn't understand that 
you know, Mt. Gox was not the end of Bitcoin. Like in my head, I was like, oh man, is this like some technological or existential flaw in Bitcoin? I didn't understand. And similarly, I think you have a lot of people having those kinds of fears right now with some of the stuff that we're seeing. And I'm going to use DeFi in quotes. And actually, I'm not going to call it DeFi at all because a lot of these like algorithmic stable coins and some of these off-chain funds doing kind of shady things, a lot of that stuff is blowing up. And I think what people kind of fail to see is this is the system kind of rationalizing itself. And this will eventually kind of flush through, okay? Because it's not like a fiat-based system where centralized custodians can make up all of this money or do bailouts. And so we are seeing, I think Erica's right, we're seeing an acceleration of some of this downside price discovery. Now, I don't have a really strong point of view on how long this is going to last, but I would say be prepared for any scenario. And that's how I'm positioning myself is like if things go back up because the Fed loosens up, that would be great. And I think we do have to talk about the macro backdrop a little bit because I don't know if you want to hit that in a different question, David, or if you want me to talk a little bit about my thoughts on that now. I got one more question. Then we're going to get to macro. And so just to tie things off when we talk about cycles is every single cycle seems to bring its own lesson. Like I talked about my lessons in 2017 is like getting super bullish on vaporware tokens and kind of fading ether, granted before the ultrasound money thesis, but like every single cycle seems to bring its new lesson. And so I'm wondering what have you guys learned out of this cycle? What did this cycle teach you? What as a community, as an industry, what did we learn from this cycle that was unique to this cycle and that we couldn't have learned previously? So DC, I can throw that one back to you. Yeah. I mean, my point of view is this is the cycle where I feel like crypto was de-risked because a lot of us were able to actually see with our own eyes and use these apps. The potential for world change through these apps, I think, is real. I mean, the stuff that we were able to do with DeFi during this cycle, I think, is incredible. And I know that the three of us were you know, chatting a long time ago. And I remember when Uniswap launched and I remember using Uniswap for the first time and I had an oh shit moment. I was like, wow, I just did a decentralized trade with no counterparty, no custodian, and it just worked on chain. That was like a game changer. And so that was a huge growth vector for crypto this cycle. The other thing that we can't ignore is the attraction that NFTs brought to the space of a lot of different users. So we went from just being a bunch of crypto and finance nerds to now bringing in artists and culture. And I don't think you can overstate how important that is for the future of this space. This was the first endogenous economy to crypto in my point of view. Mm -hmm. These were people who are creating digital works on the blockchain. They're selling them on Ethereum through various NFT marketplaces. And there are artists who have earned a living from this. Some of these people will go down as digital art legends in like five, 10, a hundred years. And we are seeing this metaverse economy open before our eyes. So I think this ties into what Eric said. None of that was here in 2017, 2018. These were all like twinkles in our eye, wondering if these things would play out. But I think we saw it happen. We saw the power of composability and we saw the users come. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, so my first thing was basically going to echo your point around NFTs where it's you never know what's like next. Like people thought, oh, DeFi is it. Like that Ethereum and DeFi, maybe like identity. And all of a sudden, boom, NFT just absolutely blew up. Blew up beyond any JPEGs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, beyond any, yeah, we all kind of like knew like punks were cool. Crypto kitties were cool. Some of this stuff was cool. But I mean, 
a thousand times more than our imagination ever believed, right. right? So I think that also ties back to the point we were talking about earlier, though, where it's like this is access and building access for anybody in the world. And I think people really underestimate how much capital and how much building can really happen when you have a network that can take anybody in the world to go in. But anybody, right? Like I'll use Venmo or PayPal as a basic example. Like it's pretty closed off. I mean, no one can build on it. Very few people can actually transact when you consider the entire world, right? All of a sudden, you bring in all these people, developers, users, capital, anybody can tap into this. Things can explode way faster than you think. And I couldn't even comprehend to this day how much NFTs blew up. I just, I mean, it's amazing. So I think that's the biggest thing I learned from this cycle is not to underestimate what the use cases could really be. I think also one of my bigger takeaways has been We've gotten to a size now where we're threatening to governments, to regulators, to people. And I never, like, I knew we would get here, but I was kind of surprised at how fast we got here, where it's like, oh, wow, <laughs> we built an alternate financial system and people are threatened by this. So I was a little taken aback at how fast it happened and, you know, people being concerned with the SEC and regulations and, you know, lawsuits in other countries and whatnot. And I think, you know, I don't want to tell people to like be careful with what they're building or like what they're putting out there, but I do think there's a target on builders and users' backs all of a sudden because this is a threatening thing. And, you know, I'll go back to the multi decade play meme that I always say like the multi decade play, the reason is it's going to take a while to usurp these like, traditional systems and incumbents, right? And I'm hoping that. As we go on, people we can elect into like, you know, Congress or government in the US or pro crypto and stuff. But I think we saw that it's going to be an uphill battle. I don't think there's just, at least in the US, obviously I'm speaking from US terms. I live here. Um, I was a little shocked at how negative some of the reaction was this cycle. So maybe it'll get better. I don't know. But yeah, those are the two things I kind of took away from the cycle. One other aspect before we get to the macro conversation is the concept of leverage, because leverage was also a very new thing this cycle, because we had leverage options from centralized entities in 2018 and 2017, but they weren't really as robust as they are now. And we had no concept of on-chain DeFi leverage, which was super transparent. And I think you can really see that in the way that the charts behave differently this cycle. For example, in May of 2021, when we had that big May crash, Tuesday, May 11th, the total crypto market cap of all crypto assets were $2.5 trillion. And then just 12 days later, on May 23rd, it had lost a trillion dollars, $1.4 trillion, down from $2.5 trillion just like 12 days earlier. And that was May. And so if we just zoom back out to the all-time high charts for total crypto market cap, the total crypto market cap peaked at basically $3 trillion. And now here we are down below $1 trillion. And it's as a result of Three Arrows Capital, the crypto's largest VC fund blew up. And now we have Insolvent and Celsius was on leverage. And now we have just contagion from leverage everywhere. Like leverage, it was like a brand new thing that happened in the cycle that I think we could definitely point as one of the sources as to how fast this cycle seems to have moved. I want to pick your guys' brain on if you do think that this cycle seems to have went faster than previous, but also just like the run-up in crypto, like the total crypto market cap was $400 billion in October of 2020, and then it was $2.5 trillion in May of 2021. Like, that's insane. And so like, I just want to pick your guys' brain as to like, to what degree did leverage 
really play a key center role of this particular cycle. Eric, I'll throw it back to you. Yeah, I mean, I'll start with saying like, unless you really have good risk management, don't touch leverage. I mean, you know, I've been there. And I remember when Maker CDPs launched, I had a bunch of good friends in crypto that like, oh, I can borrow against my ETH. I'll buy more ETH. And then, you know, ETH was crashing at the time. And it, it's just... I don't necessarily, so leverage, by the way, is like in traditional finance, like funds and firms are leveraged to the tits on, on the, you know, on the traditional side too. So I don't think it necessarily like caused the boom or bust, but I do think when we do bust, people look for excuses, right? Like, why did we bust? And, you know, hmm. there's capitals out there, they blew up, or rumors that they blew up that there's not much info around it. But I don't think, like, it kind of goes hand in hand. There's never, like, one reason, right, that we go way up or way down. I think maybe some of these firms are leveraging, and, like, on a breakout, they start leveraging up, and we break through, and... You know, then all of a sudden retail buys in and we go up higher and higher and maybe they get greedy. And then on the way down, it's kind of the same thing. So I don't necessarily think like it's why we went to 5,000 ETH and what was 60 or 70,000 Bitcoin or whatever it was. It's just a factor of the markets. And but it has been around in Ethereum land for a while. And I think it's funny, right? Like I have this weird view of where some people should be allowed to access certain financial tools in DeFi versus CeFi. And I think leverage is one where I kind of, I don't know, it's so easy to just like deposit your ETH into DeFi and like leverage long on it and not really realize what's happening there. And I remember back in 1819 and Mm -hmm. some people got like blown up and they didn't even really realize what they were doing. Whereas if you're on like TD or E-Trade or something, you try to leverage, like you have to sign like 16 different documents and like have a certain amount of money in your account and really prove you know what you're doing. And I'm not saying like I want regulators to come into DeFi per se, but I think we could do a little bit better as a community going forward to like warn against this. It's just so accessible. And I feel bad for people that just kind of like get sucked into it. DC, any thoughts? Yeah. My point of view is leverage in crypto isn't really, it's not totally new. It's been around for a while. And we saw this with like other exchanges in the past and you know bitmex was a pretty famous exchange where people were leverage longing and shorting and people lost a lot of money and they saw this back in especially in 2020 when you know the liquidation cascade almost like tanked bitcoin to who knows what price if arthur didn't pull the plug or if bitmex didn't go offline or whatever but the bottom line is leverage isn't necessarily new I think what is new, one, we have more on-chain leverage, but the on-chain stuff doesn't necessarily scare me as much. And Eric's brought up some valid points about consumer access to the services and making sure consumers are educated. However, through this liquidity crunch in macro, we've also seen traders on Robinhood and a lot of other platforms get liquidated because a lot of people, they'll sign the forms, but they don't know what they're necessarily getting into even after signing those forms. Right. They're just like, give me that 10000 extra dollars, I'll sign whatever. Exactly. They don't care. And they're just like, it's free 
money, numbers going up. I want to get as much exposure to the market as possible. But I think also what hurt us this time is all of the opaque off-chain activity, which was being executed by some of these large funds. And essentially what has reportedly happened with Three Arrows Capital, which I don't think they're the largest fund by any means. Not anymore. Yeah, not anymore. And I wouldn't also call them a VC really. They're a prop trading firm who was kind of playing a role of a hedge fund and of a VC at times, but they were trading their own money. Reportedly what has happened with their assets is they were borrowing against some of their liquid SAF positions and they were pledging that collateral to multiple parties. And because those assets are not on chain, there was no automated way to liquidate that collateral when the value fell below whatever thresholds were required for them to have access to their loans. And so there's a huge mess that needs to be unwound there. There could be some contagion or collateral damage from there. But I think fundamentally, we can't ignore some of the macro picture and liquidity tightening and how that's reduced, at least for a time, a bid for risk assets, which I think crypto is still viewed as a risk asset to most investors. So when risk assets, I think, come back into play, or at least when the selling has completed, I think crypto is going to still be well positioned because there still is that fundamental value that we talked about earlier. Yeah, let's go ahead and just lean right into that. One of the unique things about this time right now in crypto's history is the macro conditions. Most investors have never been through a situation investing where there's like a war that's increasing oil prices and food prices causing inflation. But also more importantly, very few people have invested during times of high interest rates. And this is true for not just crypto, but for the S&P 500, like a lot of the newer investors who, unless they're like older, like Gen X or older, and maybe even Gen X is too young, but like high interest rates, we haven't seen those for most people's lives. And definitely for all of crypto's history, we saw like maybe like something like one or one and a half percent at some point in time in like 2018, but it was so such a short amount of time. And so I think to me, this explains why this drawdown happened so fast. If this is indeed the bottom, 2018 took about a year to bottom and 2022 took about two thirds of one year, even a little bit less than that, about 60% of one year. Let's talk about that, like leaning into high interest rates in crypto. How is that new and how is that going to throw people for a tizzy when it comes to investing in this thing? And how should we reorient ourselves as we go forward? DC, I'll lean into you for that one. Sure. I'll start us off. I think that one of the big factors that's different this time and for the first time in 40 years as we have inflation in the US economy at pretty significant numbers. There's a lot of different reasons for that. It's not solely just a result of having printed too much money, but that's part of it perhaps through all of the moves to introduce economic stimulus into the economy during the COVID period, during the lockdowns and when people were at home, the US government printed a lot of money. There has also been supply chain shortages as a result of that. There's also been some of the energy challenges that we're facing as a result of the war in Ukraine. And so there's a lot of different factors at play, but bottom line is there's inflation in the system. The Fed has a mandate to deal with that inflation. One of the policy tools that they have at their disposal is raising interest rates and they're raising those rates. And I think that's probably, you know, I'm not a macroeconomic expert, but I pay a lot of attention to this stuff as an investor with capital at risk. And it's hard to ignore that environment. And what happens effectively when they're raising rates is 
borrowing money becomes more expensive. And as a result, liquidity starts to tighten. And so fewer people are borrowing money. You know, there's not as much money to be lent out as a result of that. And there's just less money sloshing around. And so people start to pull back on that risk curve, if you will. And crypto, I think the reality is it's still at one of the farthest ends of that risk curve. <laughs> and there are different assets within crypto that are even at farther ends of that risk curve. But crypto is far out there. Stocks are out there as well. And stocks are also taking a beating as a result. But that shedding of risk is natural. It's part of an economic cycle, which a lot of people who maybe have not been in financial markets for that long, look, we used to do this like every eight to 10 years. The Fed can extend that cycle sometimes, but there is a natural credit cycle where basically they keep rates low for a while. People take on irresponsible kinds of debt and you know you start to see some of this risky economic activity happen. And so rates get raised and it kind of calls it back. And I think we staved that off with some of the COVID stimulus because we didn't want to induce a recession or an economic pullback at that point. So we staved it off. But now we've got to kind of pay our due. So this is just the reality that we have to deal with. This is the environment that crypto exists in now. And I don't know exactly what it means, but I do think for a time at least, there's just going to be less appetite for risk. And I think that's okay. I think crypto will survive that, to be honest. I think a lot of over-leveraged participants are going to get blown out. They need to get blown out. They took on too much risk. They're invested in stuff that doesn't have value. Once that board is clear, we're going to be set up to kind of continue the ascent of crypto in my point of view. Yeah. I think like one of the more important things is crypto people are just spoiled by their gains at this point. I mean, I think from the COVID bottom of NASDAQ, they're up 2x and ESA up, what, 15x even at prices <laughs> right now. So we just kind of get like, we're almost like leverage stocks, right? So I completely agree with you, DC. Like you still have to think of crypto as a risk on asset. So if we are entering a recession, high rate era, which I do think the Fed now is going to push rates up high enough to quell inflation and push us into a recession, you know, how bad that recession is, how fast they go back to lowering rates, I'm not really sure. But, you know, crypto is a risk on asset. It will get hurt in that scenario, right? Now, at some point, I still believe that crypto, you're never going to be a totally like, 100% diversified asset, right? Every market's going to kind of move together. Cause to your point, people are pulling money out. You know, things aren't great in the economy. Of course, they're going to solve crypto. I do think we could start to once again decorrelate. So like for the first four or five years of Bitcoin and ETH, we weren't that correlated to the stock market. If you look at the correlation, it's, you know, generally, if you really zoom out, it kind of goes the same, but we weren't too tight. Recently, it's like almost a one to one correlation, you know, if you take out like the extreme moves. And crypto started to go down more recently. I think we're going to start to decorrelate a little bit more as things start to calm down. You know, there's really no predicting this stuff per se, but I think one thing I've realized recently is. Once you get into like these bear markets, people act like the worst is ahead of you when in reality, the worst is probably behind you. So most alts are down like 92 to 95%. ETH down is 75%. Bitcoin's down pretty much the same. The NASDAQ is down, I think, 38% from peak, which is a, a lot for a major stock index. Yeah. I think once you start to, not to say it can't get worse, but most likely the worst is behind us. Maybe we enter a little bit of a recession, inflation comes down, like housing gets hit a little bit. 
is the NASDAQ going to crash 60, 70% from top? I don't know. I kind of doubt it. You know, I think one of the conversations people should be having in this bear market is where are people putting cash? I mean, the US dollar is gaining, but inflation's still 8, 10% a year. Stocks are down, crypto's down, housing's maybe a little bit down from the top. Eventually people get antsy and need to invest in something. I don't know. It's a hard thing to, but at some point you can't just go down forever in every market. There's a conversation that's going around about the merge versus macro and which one is more powerful. Eric, do you have an opinion on which one's more powerful, merge versus macro? Merge, no doubt about it. So I think one thing people totally get wrong in crypto, and if you've been around a while, you get it. It's things are not priced in. Mm -hmm. They're just not. I mean, we saw that, I think, with E2 phase zero. We saw that with EIP 1559 and people... Not just like price necessarily, but narrative. People don't think these things are going to happen until they go in. And I, I think people will be shocked, pun intended, because the supply shocks are be way different, um, <laughs> at how much... I know this is a bear market podcast. I sound bullish, which is funny because on the bull market podcast, I sound bearish. So who knows? But I don't think people really... Wait, but isn't that appropriate though? Because if we're in a bear market, and like you said, if there's a decent chance that most of the bearishness, the bear expressiveness has been expressed. Right. And so I think there's a case to be made that like if prices are down 90%, that's when you get bullish because that's just rational. Yeah, exactly. This is when you should start getting bullish. And to me... I mean, 1559 plus the merge, as far, it makes ETH one of the most unique assets on the entire planet. I mean, you have a secure blockchain paying validators at a very low net issuance rate, and you're taking 1559, which is burning fees out. I mean, look, what I just said to most people is word salad. But again, like this is going to take a while for people to realize. And I think once, you know, MEVs live for stakers, transaction fees are live for stakers, we shoot up to whatever, 10, 15% for a little bit. And people are like, Hey, if I stake my ETH, I have this, you know, it's going to come down as people flood in and whatnot. But it's just, I think the merge is bullish. What's, I was a little disappointed seeing Bloomberg today put out an article where it's like, ETH's about to, you know, reduce its environmental impact by 99.9%, but miners are going to be put out of a job. Like that just proves to me how far away we are from the narrative we all know is going to come. But that just makes me bullish, man. I'm not going to lie. Like people just don't quite understand yet what we're building here. Yeah. And my take on it is it's hard not to be bullish about the merge, especially over an intermediate time frame. I mean, I'm super bullish by the fundamentals that this is going to bring because I think the narrative I just suspect in the next cycle is that ETH is going to become this financialized asset that becomes attractive as an asset to hold to a lot of other participants. And it generates this income based on demand for its block space. On top of that, all the things that Eric talked about from the supply shock and the reduced amount that was going to be sold because miners are out of the picture and basically the reward that's paid to stakers can be a lot lower than what is paid to miners. So there's a lot of virtue there. As far as where it fits within the macro cycle, I'm going to stay a little bit more neutral on that and I'll say... Eric, I'm definitely with you on the long term and the midterm. In the immediate term, if macro, I just don't know what's going to happen in the macro picture, right? I think that if macro really tanks, let's just say in the back half of this year, and maybe we are past the worst, like Eric said, but if we aren't, 
I think it's going to be hard for crypto necessarily to catch a bid and these fundamentals will get buried for a time. Okay. I say for a time because this is one of those things. It's going to be like, yeah, P1559 or even like the Bitcoin halvenings in terms of the supply shock that comes. Even if you don't see the effect immediately, it's going to be this fundamental that whenever the cycle shifts, which we all know it will shift eventually, it is going to be like fireworks. So I'm really excited about switching to proof of stake, not just for that reason, but for a lot of other reasons. And I don't think the market has properly assessed that it is going to happen. We all know it's going to happen because we're like super immersed in this stuff. I mean, it's just like Eric, David, remember when nobody believed EIP-1559 would happen? I mean, like the people just don't want to, or that Beacon Chain would launch. And by the way, the launch of Beacon Chain was probably the hardest part of the launch of ETH2 because that was the launch of the bonded validator network. So the money is already staked to secure ETH2 and a lot of it. I mean, that was a huge accomplishment. And I think if you ask most ETH2 developers, they'd say that was probably the hardest part of what they had to do. Yeah, my mental model for the merge, it's it's like a tide that doesn't stop rising. So yeah, like tides, they oscillate in and out. And so yeah, macro could get worse and maybe gets really bad. But like the tide still comes at the end of the day. Like it's a tide that always catches up. It's like a zombie. It's always on your heels. It's always catching up to you. You always gotta be on the run. Um, that was a weird analogy. <laughs> so as we wrap up here, I just wanna pick your guys' brains as like some advice for newcomers. So there's a lot of people came into crypto. And one thing I am bullish on in this particular bear market is that the crypto industry actually retains people much better than it did in all previous bear markets. Like we have more things to do. We have better content and better education, I will say. And we have just more just camaraderie and community in this space. And so for a lot of newcomers who got perhaps disillusioned by how fast some of these things would come and how this future isn't actually here in 2022 or 2023, but it's actually going to take us, you know, 2026, 7, 8 and beyond to really get to the vision that we had in the bull market. What advice do you have for these first cyclers? For the newcomers that are down bad, Eric, what advice can you give them to make them feel a little bit better? So I'll just be blunt and honest, first and foremost, don't expect gains that people got by being in early. So don't expect that in a year or two years, you're going to gain 2000 X, like three hundred thousand X, whatever. It just, it's not mm-hmm. going to happen again. Like as the market caps gets bigger and bigger, you know, it's almost impossible, right? Like you were at a trillion dollar market cap or whatever. You're not going to get another 2000 X on top of that overnight. So I would say first and foremost, like reel in your expectations, If you're here and you're invested and you believe in things, I think that's what matters most. So don't be here if you're just like you, your neighbor told you to buy crypto and you think it's going to go up, right? Like find something that you believe in. I don't care if it's buying your favorite NFT, like, cause NFTs are cool. And I think Ethereum offers a lot to art. Maybe you think the merge is cool. Like find something in this community that you actually believe in, because I think even when you have a big downturn, you actually believe in the technology. I know that's a meme, but it's like, it's actually true. Like you're going to, you know, hold on. I think if that goes down. And I think the biggest, and I think one of the worst things we are as a community, not very good at when stuff's going well or bad is on the way up, take a little profit on the way down buy a little bit. Like you don't need to always be a hundred percent. You can take 
take 50% profit on the way up at some point and you're probably going to be okay. Like when people are super greedy, sell a little. When people are super fearful, sell a little and stake the rest of it and keep it forever, right? Like it doesn't need to be an all or nothing endeavor. And I think that's the number one thing people don't quite get. It's like, oh, I have to be 100% ETH or not. It's not true. You can be a little bit cash and ETH and on both ways, you know? So I think that's the best advice I can possibly give. And I think what you're perhaps saying as well is that it might also be the profit maximalist approach to that strategy where like a lot of people, they come in late and everyone comes into crypto and they think they're late. It's like part of this industry. It's just like the rite of passage. You come in and you feel FOMO. And so what do you do to answer that FOMO? You maximally expose yourself. You put every last dime into your bullish crypto asset. But I think what you're saying is that if you go in like 75% in, but keep 25% in cash, I don't know, pick your balance. That actually ends up being like the profit maximalist approach because that 25% cash allows you to buy the dips if they happen. And then also that commitment to not being 100% exposed makes hitting that sell button easier, perhaps when you should be hitting that sell button. And so if I'm interpreting this correctly, committing to a non 100% crypto exposed position is perhaps a way to keep your head on your shoulders and be rational and actually perhaps make more money in the long term with that strategy. Would you say that's a correct take, Eric? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a good summary. And, you know, David, you and I talked about on the podcast, we did, you know, just the one-on-one thing we talked about. Mm -hmm. And it's like, don't go all in. Don't, Ethereum sucks you in from not only an investment perspective, but a mental job, friends, people, you just now like art, everything just sucks you in. Don't, get that sucked in. I mean, I know a lot of us live and breathe this stuff, but like keep some <laughs> funds on the side to buy dips. And when everyone's freaking out and saying we're going to 100K, sell a little bit. It doesn't matter if you sold, you know, 40% below top or whatever. At least you kind of set stuff aside. And I'll also say like, take a mental break. I know a lot of people listening to this probably are just 100% all in constantly on crypto. Step away from a little bit, unsubscribe from Bankless for a few months, and um, you know, don't do that. Don't do Twitter. that. I don't think David was just would have reacted to that. <laughs> <laughs> just step away, resubscribe when you come back. But no, all kidding aside, just like take a breath, sell a little bit, rebuy at the bottom, resubscribe, all that stuff. You said it's okay if you sell the top like 40% below the top. 40% below the top is $2,900 right now for Ether price. And so if you had sold at those numbers, you'd be feeling pretty good right now. So it's okay to miss by 40%, especially when these cycles are so rampant. DC, what thoughts have come to mind? I mean, just my experience being in a variety of financial markets over my life, the more you feel like you need the market to do something for you, the more likely it is to do the exact opposite. <laughs> and I hate to put it that way, but that's just true. And I think this goes back to Eric's point, which is really about risk management. And I see way too many people with this mindset of being all in or all out. And I would never be all in or all out in crypto. And even in my layer zero conversation with you, David, I talked about how I had my risk hedge through other assets that I had accumulated over the course of my life. And I wasn't just going degen long all in. Now, I put a lot of money in, but I also did it at a time when valuations were low. And so I think you've got to first and foremost position yourself to survive and to be able to stay in the game. And I think what you see on 
Twitter and different forms of social media is you see products of survivorship bias. Mm. These are all people who kind of followed some of that advice. You don't see the hundreds or thousands of people who washed themselves out who leveraged at the wrong time, who took on too much risk and they lost everything. So you've got to manage that risk. You've got to manage your expectations too. And I think part of that is understanding where we are in this technology development arc. And I think you see a lot of comparisons, flawed comparisons in my point of view to like, Silicon Valley type products and that sort of thing, because they're centrally developed and they can iterate very quickly. Look, we are developing decentralized networks here, at least the real products in my point of view, like Ethereum, Bitcoin, and some others. And you can't move these things at light speed. It takes time to iterate. And especially in the case of Ethereum, you have to reach social consensus. There are multiple clients that have to get on board. And that's why everyone's like, why is it taking so long? Ethereum will never upgrade to proof of stake. It's like, look, this isn't as simple as adding a new feature to Gmail or even adding a new feature to Solana or some other blockchain, which is more centralized. Ethereum's process is a lot more different, but that is also what gives it long-term value. And so I think if you want to be patient, you want to learn how to be patient about this, study the history of the consumer internet and how that evolved. And there were a lot of periods where it was just kind of stagnant. And then we'd have a new iteration and we would make a quantum leap as a result of that. And all of a sudden we had new functionality that we're playing with. I think for this upcoming market cycle, that's going to be probably layer twos on Ethereum and some other things that I can't foresee right now. It's going to unlock new potential for what this technology can do. And I think fundamentally, you've got to learn about the technology and what differentiates some of these chains in my point of view. And you've got to really ask yourself, where is that unique value? that's going to survive across cycles. Are you invested in the next Namecoin or are you invested in the next Ethereum? Is there going to be a next Ethereum? You know, I mean, I think you've got to really have some of those honest conversations with yourself and you've got to manage your position appropriately. This goes back to what Eric said at the beginning. I mean, whenever anyone new comes to me, it's like, what should I buy? I'm like, buy some Ethereum and maybe some Bitcoin and then just spend time learning about the space and make sure that those are the core of your portfolio. If you want to take swing bets on other stuff, fine, but you've got to learn how it actually works. I think my final point of advice is stay engaged through the bear. I mean, respecting Eric's advice to kind of be bored or to take a break, a mental health break, I think that's very valuable, but also don't check out, okay? Because you will miss the next Uniswap. You'll miss the next DeFi. You'll miss the next NFTs. The people who did really well in those markets, all of them were very involved through the entire bear. Right. If you think you can just show back up in two years and tap into all that, I think it's going to be pretty difficult. Certainly, yeah. The people that got the Uniswap airdrop were here before the token, obviously. That's how it works. And so like growing your footprint during the bear market and just growing your skills. Just to exactly what you were saying, DC, no one knew that it was going to be DeFi that was going to take off. And no one knew that it was going to be NFTs. But the people that did figure it out, figured it out first, patiently were waiting around in the bear market because they knew something would come. They didn't know what, but they were the ones that heard it first because that's what they do in the bear market. They just stick around and hang on to it. And then I think one last comment I want to add on Eric's comment about leverage. People think that these markets are rational, like at a cursory glance, like, oh yeah, like we can do some DCF flows and blah, blah, blah. And like, they're not even close to doing that in crypto land. But even in stock markets, like people think that these things are based off of numbers and to some degree they are, but they're mostly based off of emotions. And especially the crypto markets, because crypto markets are so hard to evaluate. Like how the hell do you evaluate Bitcoin? Like 21 million hard crap. How do you evaluate that? You evaluate it with your gut. Like just how do you feel about it? And therefore, like when you're on leverage, 
these markets, when they call it a depression because people are literally depressed, or they call it the euphoric part of the market cycle because people are literally euphoric. So if you're on leverage and you're also like going crazy, that's why it's because like you're experiencing, like you're not just leveraged up on your financial assets, you're leveraging up on your emotions too. And so like, there's no way that you can keep yourself sane in these market cycles while you're also leveraged. You will literally drive yourself crazy uh, and you will lose all of your sleep and you won't learn to think like a normal human being who thinks like normal human beings think in multiple year long timeframes. Like they have a plan for themselves. And when you're on leverage, like no one holds leverage for years, that's ridiculous. And so as you are playing in the markets, understand that like your emotional gut responses are very strong guiding force that you can't really get away from because you know what's making you feel it is you and you're stuck with you and also the decisions that you make throughout these market cycles. So that's my last comment. I'll give you guys, if you guys want any further comments to add on or anything else you want to close out with. I'll echo two things DC said. My first and foremost opinion is survive in advance. That's all that matters. Don't get blown up. If you keep most of your crypto in advance, you're going to be here and you're going to make money. I promise you. And, you know, it's just hard seeing people get like so blown out by influencers on Twitter and stuff, like on the ups and downs. Like just stick to your convictions, you know, stick to people that you trust. Social media does play a crappy influence in all of this. And I think I'll say, go read Devil Take the Hindmost. Like the crypto is not the first market, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think David, you've read it, right? Um, Crypto is not the first market to capitalize (laughs) on greed and fear, right? So, you know, stick to something you're convicted with. Know that things are going to go up and down, and don't get taken by influencers and like hype or down. Like, sure, maybe they'll like convince you to buy a little bit, but. Please do not take like over leverage at the top when these people are saying things. And I think like super cycle, most people will. Yeah. yeah, The the next super cycle, please don't do that. So all I would say is look, just advance. I've made stupid mistakes. I've been around since 2013. I've been called on margin positions. I've made stupid investments. I've taken stupid token buys. But at the end of the day, I try to just keep a core ETH position, not on leverage. And look, I'm here and I'm doing fine. So just try to do that. And I think you'll survive. DC, any last comments? Yeah, my final advice is teach yourself not to FOMO into stuff. So like when the hype is at an all-time high, take a step back, let the market do what it needs to. If the value is still real and it's still there, you'll have an opportunity to enter. And I think the flip side of that is, look, if you want to know how a lot of people in crypto really ended up making it, they were involved in the bear market they bought during the bear when no one else wanted to buy. I mean, I know the three of us on this podcast right now, we're buying either at $90, $100 during the last cycle. Most people could not get rid of it fast enough at that point. Okay. And if we see another depression of that scale, depression phase, there could be an opportunity that presents like that. Um, okay. My final, final point is don't try to like time the bottom perfectly. If you're trying to buy it like that, it's much more effective just to dollar cost average after it's already sold off a lot. And I'll tell you guys what I tell my friends and family right now. Look, if you have cash and you're, if you have an income and you're trying to gain exposure to this market, now is a great time to start entering positions. And yes, it could decline a significant amount from here still. However, is it going to be lower than this point in five years? I think probably not. 
I think it could be potentially much higher in the right kinds of assets. So you've really got to position yourself for the long game and you've really got to position yourself to be able to take advantage of these opportunities while they exist. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. Don't try to time bottoms and tops. Like it's a fool's errand. As long as you're within that range and like we're down 80% or whatever and like stuff looks bad, starting the dollar cost averaging, it's probably not the worst idea, right? Maybe you don't call the exact pico bottom or pico top, but you know, you're probably doing yourself a service by, you know, I, I totally echo your sentiment here by, you know, buying in now or somewhere between here and zero and then selling all the way up between 10k and infinity. Amazing guys. Well, I feel very relaxed after listening to you guys. And I hope the listeners have gleaned some perspective and are able to just calm down a little bit while the markets are very, very chaotic. So Eric, DC, thank you for sharing some of your wisdom with a lot of people who I know are finding very, very valuable at this present moment. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, thanks, David. Cheers, guys. Bankless listeners, you know what to do. If you enjoy this content, you got to like and subscribe because Bankless will bring you everything from the chain smokers to talking about block production to the wisdom of multi-cyclers like Eric and DC. So thank you, for, sir, for sticking around through this bear market war stories episodes. Risk and disclaimers, of course, you can lose what you put in. Crypto is risky, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, of course, but we are glad that you are with us on the Bankless journey. And unlike what Eric Connor said, don't unsubscribe to Bankless during the bear market because we're going to be continuing to delivering you good stories and podcasts along the way. So thanks a lot. Cheers, guys. Cheers.